0: Our next speaker started her A.A., was exposed to A.A. in the beginning in Houston, Texas. And she moved from there to Dallas in 1943, and she was instrumental in the start of the Dallas group. I give you Esther Elizardi.
1: I never got it up, but I, you try to talk about AA and what AA has done to me, but I don't always hope that I can say something in Marvel. But I've been here for a long time, so don't, don't hold your breath. Well, I won't. I had to laugh when Pat was talking about going to see the woman with the black eyes. At least you could hide that. But if he tried to come see me, take me to a picture show, my life was just one series of bangs after another. I knocked out my two front teeth. I uh, broke my toe and my dress caught on fire and I didn't sit down for four months. And I just never got to go anywhere. Well, I think uh, in uh, all AA meetings, we usually say we are alcoholics and I'm from Texas. So we have a little longer introduction. We have sort of bigger and better things, as you all know. So, <laughs> I'm Esther, and I'm an alcoholic, and through following the program of 8 to the best of my ability, I have been dry since May 1941. It's rather hard, I guess, for all of you to see me clean and sober tonight, this afternoon, to ever think that I was in the condition that I was when I came into LA. I had a A very happy, younger life. Though I was born and raised in New Orleans, Louisiana, Uh, we had wine and liqueurs in the house all the time. It was never anything that was taboo. And in fact, uh, for dinner I would have uh, claret with ice and sugar in it when I was a little girl. And on state occasions, every now and then we'd have uh, creme de mint, poured over ice with a little Draw, and It was like a snowball, I don't know if you all know what snowballs are, but never did I ever know what the effect really was. It was wine, with dinner, and uh, this sort of watery creme de mint and things like that. And the first time that I think I realized what alcohol could do for me was the night that I married. All my life, I had been an extremely sensitive person. I had been uh, hard-headed and and so self-conscious that it hurt all over. And I was having this big church wedding, and all that day I was frightened death that I wasn't going to be what I wanted to be. I was afraid my dress wouldn't fit right, that the church wouldn't be crowded, I, that I would stumble maybe and fall. And I was just in a panic. And in those days, you know, I'm not young. I was married so long ago. And in that daytime, you didn't have a little orchid when you walk up the aisle. And you didn't have your picture taken two or three days before. The photographer came to the house two hours before the ceremony and posed you with this huge bouquet like a gangster funeral say, you know, just hold it. And being as self conscious as I was, it is still today just agony for me to have a picture made. So I posed this way and that way, and, and the headdress I had on was made of the pearls, and it felt so heavy I know it was rock. And I just was about to faint when it was time to go to the church, and my daddy looked at me and realized uh, how nervous and upset I was. So he came to this old uh, servant of ours and he said, Miss Esther is about to say. He said, Well, uh, get her a drink." Well, this oh, cook about it, was a gin head, and so he knew what a drink meant. He brought me a half a glass of bourbon, and down it went. And the church was just three blocks from the house, and I got into the car. It was February, it was cold as it could be, and then we were right into the church. And as soon as I got there, he started music, and I walked up that aisle. And that bourbon went all through me. And I was to there just like May West. I'm i knew to do it all over again. So, anyhow, you know, I just didn't kind of hardly remember it. I was just up and down. So, I don't think that I ever thought too much of it consciously, but subconsciously, it must have registered. Gee, this is good, you <laughs> know. So after I married, I grew up. It was during the Prohibition era, and I started to drink with all the pride. I did not drink honey at all. In fact, not at all up until the time I married. Then uh, I could hold an awful lot. I brought everybody home, and so just when I passed the line from social into pathological drinking, I do not know. It's a very subtle. And a very vicious thing but past it I did. <laughs> and it was in, I was married in 1924. And along around 31, when I was living in Tulsa, it began to cause comment in my particular group of friends. All of us were drinking too much at the time. You know how it was. We bought uh, moonshine in half a gallon. And it's like going on a picnic. You don't leave till all the sandwiches are gone. Well, you never left till all the half gallons were gone. You didn't want to drag the half gallon back, and you'd hate it to leave any in it. So, uh, but I know my husband drank too much. But when it started interfering with the way he felt the next day, he gave it off. But I didn't. And he got, I thought at the time that I was just, uh, with a, lot of, with a bunch of sissies that they just didn't know what, how to live. And anyhow, I was in Tulsa and Allison, New Orleans, and they didn't do things quite like I thought they should do. So when we moved back to Dallas, it got pretty bad. And my husband became very worried about it. And one morning after coming home and finding me passed out, he asked me why I drank. Well, isn't that a question to ask an alcoholic, why? Why? Well, if I only knew why, I wouldn't wouldn't have been in the condition I was in. But anyhow, I thought maybe if I talked to a psychiatrist, it would help. So he said he would find out who to go to. And so Frank left, and I got drunk because I had given him my problem. There wasn't anything else to do. And the next morning, I awakened in the asylum. Well, I didn't know what a crazy house was. And, and I, in my drunkenness, I had, I thought, uh, consented to go to a private hospital. So I awakened in this bathroom, and uh, I want a not My purse isn't bad. I was so drunk, I didn't even put a robe on. I, I just had my coat, no bed and sickles. And just a bare room, not a cigarette anything. Right I look for a bell, and there's no bell. So I get up and open the door on this hall, crazy people all around me, and I nurse comes and pushes me back in. Well, I couldn't get out of there. I stayed for 17 days, and I would not even talk to the doctor because he wouldn't let me smoke. And I said that I, I wouldn't talk to him as long as he kept me there. Though so I knew now that I couldn't identify myself with these horrible people, I thought, well, I was really maybe staying underneath the mute, but I really was nuts. There was a tree right outside my window, and there was a squirrel going up and down, and I was afraid he was going to catch me. But <laughs> anyhow, on the 17th day, this psychiatrist let me go home. I had hysterics for the first and only time in my life. I just couldn't stand it any longer. And I went home and I had a train nurse and he came out to see me every day for about two weeks. And I thought that I cooperated with that man a 100% after I came home. But I know now that I didn't. I told him the truth up to a certain point and then I told him what I wanted to believe about myself. And it went on, thought up, and back to work. The next year, my husband was going to New York, and uh, he didn't want to leave me alone. I had just gotten a dog, and I wanted a house. I was living in an apartment. He thought I was off in a building with people. But I didn't think that an apartment was any place to raise a dog. So I wanted a house. And he said, well, he had to go to New York. He couldn't get a house for me and leave me alone. Unless my father came to see me. So I got the dog, I got the house, I got a new fur coat, my daddy came out to stay with me, and my husband went to New York, and I got drunk. And so it was just uh, one of those things that I just woke up drunk. I wanted to be good. But anyhow, my father didn't, he had known about this other experience I'd had in the asylum. So he said, he talked me into taking the Samaritan treatment. Well, I know there's so many graduates of the Samaritan treatment here. I've taken it three times. And I say, there's no easy way to sober up, but that's the most excruciating. And it doesn't help because you can leave and drink, and it doesn't make you sick. It only makes you sick when the sheets full of that stuff. So my husband had been talking to the minister. At our church, and there was a doctor in the congregation that thought he could help me with vitamins. Well, I'd go down and get all four vitamins, and then I'd stop and get my pints. And they don't, the vitamins don't seem go over either. Then we moved down to Houston in 1940. There was nothing else much to try. My minister had worn himself out. He a child of psychiatry. And so it was a series of getting a doctor in to sober me up. I started off by telling you the bangs I got out of life. I was, uh, Frank didn't know what condition I would be in when he'd come home. As I say, for three months I couldn't sit down. For another, almost that long, my foot was in a cast because the doctor was waiting to find me sober to take it off. He said, I'd break my toe all over again. <laughs> he left it on weeks longer than he should have. So one afternoon, I was taking my dog for a walk. In fact, I had been to Anthony Orleans and spent Easter. My husband had to go to New York again, so he took me home to my family and left me there for the month that he was away. And that month, for some reason, or other, I didn't take a drink. And I got back to Houston the week following Easter. You know, so God's proud of myself, I didn't know what to do. And Frank went to work that day, and I started in And about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I had to take my dog a And I don't walk straight sober, but you'll see when I'm drunk. So we weaved down the street, and a cruising car passed. And I guess they wanted to take me home, but I got a little bit sassy. So they had me in the car in the door And we brought the dogs home, and they took me to jail. Just plain drunk. Nothing else, not certain So I was completely, I was furious, and I was as drunk as I could be, and I think I must have gone just sort of haywire on the inside when I realized where I was. I know now later they called my husband right away and told him that new jail wasn't in place for me. But they were afraid to leave me in the tunnel, house by myself, and then I was in such foul state that they thought if he left me for a couple hours to cool off, it would be all right. <laughs> so Frank came down from him. and during that time that I was in the jail, I remember going back on the bunk and just crying in, oh, just sobbing my heart. And I now know that I just was so completely baffled by myself, my behavior, getting in situations like that, I, I just didn't know which way to turn. But when the policeman came to get me out of the cell, with was this bar gate, and my husband was signing this ticket, you know, he paid a $5 sign. And I was so mad, and I looked at him, and I said, Don't you find anything in this place? You see, I was going to through the city of Houston for doing that to Mrs. as But Frank looked around at me, and he said, Esther, he said, Remember, you're in jail. You're not at home. And I never, ever want anybody to look at me like that again. It was... Just about two or three days after that, that he came in my room one morning. I know I didn't draw a sober dress till then. I was frightened to death, and it was all a subconscious fear. I didn't know what was wrong, but I just couldn't stay sober. And Frank came in this morning, and he threw a magazine on the bed. And he had held on to it for so long because I had resented everything he had ever done to try to help, that he was afraid to let me read this article. He was afraid maybe I wouldn't want what the article had to offer. A friend of ours had sent it to him, and it was the Saturday Evening Post article of A.A. He said, I'm not going to let you, but when I leave, read this article. And he said, if you want to try, this, I'll go with you all the way. But he said, if you don't, you're going to have to go home because I cannot sit by and watch you destroy yourself any longer. So when he left, I had the shake, and I can't see very good even with my glasses on, and I had a hangover. I I can't, can't it off. I just can't read, I can't do anything. These people that could read the text is very to sober up on. Got me. I had to look at pictures and it had to be great big pictures. But uh, I thought, well, I just have to have a couple of drinks for my eyes to focus. So I got a couple of drinks inside underneath my belt and put on the sack and started reading. And from the moment that I read, what A has to say I wanted I don't know if something happened to me after a little over 14 years in I a there is so much awe about it I would love to be able to say tell you about how and why it works I would like to be able to define it but to me it's, it's, it's a growing life and it's a, a, shape, a definition it is uh, It's something that, uh, it can't be taught, it has to be taught. It's a believing spirit setting other believing spirits aside. And I think the most wonderful thing about it is it can be achieved in any walk of life. Because the achievement is not ours, it is God's. And I believe that there is no situation too desperate, none too difficult. Now, any unhappiness to death to be overcome in this life-burning venture, alcoholic humanity.
0: Anne wishes to to inform you that uh, she forgot to mention that due to the lease we have on the property here, we agreed to no smoking in the opera house, so please, get You know, we're 20 years old now, and uh, some of us are frustrated that we haven't got a million members. Well, some 65 or 70 years ago, my friend, there was a certain Dr. Pseudo in New York City who contracted what was then called consumption. And when you contracted consumption in those days, you made out your will and you prepared to die. That was it. He had it, I think he got it from his brother. He made out his will, he sold his practice, and he moved up to Saranac Lake in a little red cottage, fishing cottage. That little cottage is still there, it's a shrine. Trudeau was a man of deep spiritual nature, out of courage, a man of detail. He kept a daily diary of what he did, and he worked out a therapy of rest, relaxation, freedom from worry, and diet, and so on, and he arrested successfully his disease and knew how he did it. And from that humble beginning, we have the tremendous TB associations of today. I don't know how many TB hospitals in your state have been closed, but we've had a lot of them closed up in our state. It's rapidly shrinking as a problem. Now, that's 65 or 70 years ago, my friend. And nowadays, when somebody goes before the portable x-ray and he finds a spot, they send him somewhere else to confirm it, and when they tell him he's got it, he goes out and he does what they tell him. That day will come for us, my friends. As you and I live, we will pass the word along by our example that here is how to arrest alcoholism and be happy about it. You are the living example. And uh, we are the pioneers in this business. A hundred years from now, they will bless you. Remember, you have a message to carry. And we've got a man here from Beverly Hills, California, today with a message. He's carried it in lots of places. He originated in the Midwest, the Kentucky-Indiana border. He did his preliminary drinking out here in the Midwest. He uh, took his postgraduate course in alcoholism uh, out in California. He graduated out there, and uh, he also had his disease arrested out there. He's been a very popular speaker at many states and regional conventions, and I'm sure I want to sit over there in his seat now because this is a blind spot here, and I haven't been able to hear the speakers myself. But I understand you can hear him over in Chuck's chair. The next speaker, ladies and gentlemen, is Chuck Shaver in Beverly Hills, California. Thank you, Pat, and good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I think this would be an awful good time for us to take the other twenty-eight minutes of uh, Anne's period of silence. (laughs) In the last few days, I have heard everything that I would like to say said so much better than I can say it. But the only thing I feel reasonably sure of right now is that I think I know how a spare time (laughs) and in the very short time that we have together you know I can't get warmed up in 20 minutes I don't even get in high gear until about 35 I think about all I'll be able to say is to express my eternal gratitude to this program of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's pretty wonderful when people get into the condition that I was in 10 years ago that there is a place to come, that there is a program by which we can gain and maintain our surprise. Had this not been true, I would have departed for the areas about nine years ago. And I'm too grateful I can't see. And when I think that drunk like ourselves, with no program of recovery, worked out this wonderful program of ours. By trial and error, with no precedent, and came up with a foolproof program such as was here when I needed it. I'm so grateful that I came through. I'm sure that if had it been left to me, <laughs> all of you that came after me would have been dead, too. <laughs> I have three admirers out on the coast. And every once in a while they get up and eulogize at me quite highly, you know, in an introduction. And there's nothing that stick with me so much. I just sit back there and laugh way down deep. Because I read Jack Alexander's article in 1941, and I was already going down for the third time. And it took me until January 1946 to get here. Ha, 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 ha. Ha, ha, I knew it was here, too. Ha, <laughs> I oh, And since I could not get sober and stay sober, try as I might. There is nothing within me that even wants to believe that I might maintain sobriety by myself. I believe that the most meaningful words to me in alcoholics Anonymous are these. A is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other. Share their experience, strength, and hope with each other. That they might solve their common problem and help other people recover from outbreak. Ah, how terrific it was go! And I'm mindful of that day, that night, rather, in January, nine and a half years ago, when I walked into my first meeting alone. I had a Camel's hair coat left. (laughs) We don't wear them very often out there, so I had it left. And it had a big collar on it, and I had the collar pulled up around my face, and my hat pulled over, and I walked into this meeting alone. And a very fine-looking gentleman walked up to me and stuck out his hand. He says, are you looking for somebody? And I says, no, sir. And he says, what are you doing here? And I says, I'm looking for sobriety. And he says, brother, you're in the right place. He didn't ask me for a letter of recommendation. He didn't ask me where I'd been last night. He just says, you're in the right place. Take off your hat and coat. And come in. And they shared their experience, strength, and hope with me. And they were total strangers to me. And here they were, sharing their experience, strength, and hope. When the people that knew me didn't. And these are wonderful words in my book that we share our experience, strength, and hope with each
1: other. I love Bill's
0: little definition of this fellowship. That A is just one alcoholic helping another, and the two of them helping somebody else. I never had the privilege of having a sponsor on this program. They that every one of them, is whether you know it or not, or whether you like it or not. And so, I think the thing that I took away from me, from that first meeting, more than anything else, was that spirit of fellowship. I think we have two things in a We have spirit and principle. And I think it's by the spirit that we get sober and by the practice of the French, that we remain, so. Reminds me of a little thing that happened to me in San Diego. I had been the speaker down there one evening, and it was a rather large meeting, and I talked from a high stage, and after the meeting was over, Last laughed in your coffee line it was a pretty long line And I was standing back there commiserating with myself When an old boy walked up to me And he had a thing in his ear And a battery hanging on him And he says, you were the speaker, weren't you? And I says, I think it was And he says,
1: eh?
0: <laughs> I says, yes And he says, I got a question would like to ask you And I says, what is it? He says, eh? I said, what is it? <laughs> He was asked this question of a panel a while back in the good mansion. And I yelled at him to go ahead. And he says, Can you tell me how a man can come to this program and get sober and stay sober when he came to words you a goddamn? <laughs>